So take a few moments to refresh your bodhicitta motivation so that this time of uh, listening to this class on tenets will be as beneficial as possible for yourself and all other sentient beings and be a cause for becoming a Buddha, fully awakened, fully enlightened, to be able to help all sentient beings in the best possible way. And then let's do a little bit of meditation on the absence or emptiness of a self-sufficient, substantially existent self. So this is one thing that all the Buddhist schools, all the Buddhist tenant systems agree upon, that that kind of a self doesn't exist. It's something to be refuted be realized as empty, as non-existent. And Lama Tsongkhapa said that this, this is an innate conception. So all sentient beings have an innate conception grasping at this kind of a self, a self-sufficient, substantially existent self. So even babies and animals have it. And um, so the, the terminology is a little uh, difficult, but basically it means the kind of self that seems to be somewhere within the aggregates as opposed to completely separate. It's not like a completely different thing to the aggregates, the body and mind. So it's somewhere within the aggregates, but still a bit separate. Uh, kind of in a in a superior position, a bit like an owner of the aggregates, a controller of the aggregates, a boss ruling the aggregates. And we can see examples of this when we say or think things like my body or my face my hand, my foot, or my mind, my thoughts, my feelings. So there seems to be an I that is the owner of the body and the mind or parts of the body and the mind. So just look into your own experience and see if you can recall a time maybe even today, or maybe even this moment, when you do have this sense of a self, of an I, that is like in a controlling position in relation to your body and mind. So examples that we might have would be like having the thought, I am going to make my mind positive and happy. Or another possibility would be, 
I can't keep my mind on the object of meditation. It keeps wandering away. So those are some examples because there's a sense of an I that's like the owner and the controller or, you know, a sense that we should be able to control our mind, although we can't. So just look into your experience and see if you can find an experience of this, uh, this kind of an I, this sense of an I that's a controller. If you are able to catch a glimpse of this sense of self or I, then look at that more carefully. Explore that more carefully. Ask yourself, what exactly is it? Is it something you can point to somewhere within your body and mind? What kind of phenomena is it?
So later we'll look at some other ways of kind of investigating this sense of self. But it's so tricky because when we're not looking, our sense of self or I can seem so real and solid and strong. But then when we try to look for it, <laughs> disappears. Okay, so um, last week we were talking about <laughs> one of the things that we talked about was um, animals learning um, words. And I had come across some time ago, I came, I, I just found this, this little video about a dog that had learned a hundred words and I was looking for it and I found this one. I think it may be the same dog and maybe I just misunderstood, but this dog has learned more than a thousand words. And I just thought that's really cool. And it's only a couple of minutes, so let's have a look at it. Psychology professor John Pitty was interested in finding out how many words a dog can learn. You did good. And seven years ago, he found the perfect student, Chaser. Using crate loads of toys, John and his colleagues devised a groundbreaking study of canine intelligence. <laughs> the toys all have names that Chaser has learned throughout her life, and John picks eight at random. Chase, let's play some. Chase, find punt. Go get punt. Find pop pop punt. Do it, do it. Yeah. In time. Yeah, good girl. Chase, find roach. Find roach. Find roach. I want roach. Good girl. John never looks at the toys on the map. So to pick the right object, Chaser has to actually understand what he's saying. Yeah, there's wow. <laughs> In three years of intensive training, Chaser has learned an astounding 1,022 words. That's 116 balls, 26 frisbees, and over 800 cloth animals. But how does she do it? On the mat are five items Chaser knows, and one new one she's never seen. A cat that John calls Meow. Chase, find Meow, find Meow, find Meow. Do it, girl, do it, do it, do it, girl. Make it to Papa. This task involves highly complex logic. The new word isn't in Chaser's vocabulary, so she has to understand that it might refer to an unfamiliar object. <laughs> Give me out. I want me out. Do it, girl. Do it. Right now. <laughs> the way to solve the puzzle is by a process of elimination. <laughs> There's me out. <laughs> the new toy and the sound of meow are launched in her brain. Watch me out. Yeah, good girl. <laughs> 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 so I was wondering, was that a, a, a valid inferential cognizer that recognized meow or a correct assumption? For a while she was in doubt, mm -hmm. you know, she was kind of standing there. But <laughs> Renjo, she got it right. <laughs> yeah. So I was, I was thinking about how 
um, you know, every sentient being has in their past lives been human beings. And so they have uh, learned language and used language. And also I think other kinds of beings besides humans, probably devas use language and maybe even hungry ghosts and hell beings, you know, because there's a story about Buddha talking to a hungry ghost mother, communicating with her. And there's stories like in that book about hell, you know, communicating with the hell beings. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so besides human beings, there's probably other beings who also use language. And so we've all had that experience. So even the dog, like Chaser, in, in past lives has been a human being and other kinds of beings that use language. So within the mind of all beings, there's um, memories of that, of learning language, learning words. And so then um, if we're in the right conditions, like this dog who has an owner <laughs> that's teaching her words, and uh, I think dogs are also in intelligent compared to other animals, like maybe mosquitoes or snakes that might have a harder time learning <laughs> words. Um, so because, yeah, then in the right conditions, it would be possible to, again, learn language. And then, of course, you know, when, it, when an animal dies, if it's born in a human body, it has a human body and a human brain, and then all the conditions in the human world to be able to learn language then those kind of imprints wake up and so yeah so we all have the ability to to learn language to learn words but then what the cheetah matra school is saying is that all like i, I read that um passage from appearance and reality from john um what's his name guy hmm? I knew it. Yeah. Um, saying that all beings, even animals and, and babies, you know, have this innate sense that objects exist by way of their own characteristics as the referent of their name. So there seems to be something in the object that, yeah, is like the basis for that name. So if we remember back to when we were toddlers and learning words, like our, our parents and other people would tell us, you know, this is a ball, you know, and then again and again, and we start repeating it. And then we recognize this is a ball. So we probably don't think, oh, ball is just a word, just a name that human beings give to this object, but rather, it is a ball. There's ballness, <laughs> like from the side of the object. Yeah, don't you think that's how we we see things? And uh, so I think I think that's what the Chidamatrams are talking about. Um, because I was reading in meditation on emptiness, he has uh, Jeffrey has more explanation about this and. Um, He's using the example of a pot, but I'll use computers since I got one right in front of me. Um, and so it seems like this object is the basis of the designation computer by way of its own being 
and not just established by verbal convention. That's how, that's how it appears. It's not just a convention, the word computer that we give to this, but from its own being, it's, it is a computer. And then he says, after our eye consciousness, we have a visual consciousness seeing the object, immediately thought imputes computer without any other thought having to intervene. We don't have to have some other thought, you know, uh, to come to that idea of computer. It's just like from sense consciousness to uh, conceptual consciousness, computer. So sense consciousness alone is able to lead thought into imputing computer without any other reflection required. And um, so that's how I guess we can identify this, this innate sense. And according, he says that according to Chidamatra, this is a false appearance. You know, that this object is a computer by its own characteristics and not not just label that. And um, yeah, it's a false appearance due to previous conditioning. But he says that according to Satrantika, the last school we looked at, um, this, this isn't false. <laughs> it's correct. <laughs> so he says in Meditation on Emptiness, um, the Satrantikas say that both the appearance of objects as naturally bases of names and the conception of them as that are correct because sense objects are truly existent external objects and when they appear to a faultless sense consciousness their very mode of being must appear just as it is so I thought that was interesting that Chitta Matra is, you know, moving in a quite different direction than, than, than the Sotrantikas. Um, so Sotrantikas say that, you know, this object appearing as something external and is the, naturally the basis of its name, this is correct, it's a correct perception. We're seeing the object as it is. So maybe the Satrantikas just didn't think very carefully about what they're saying. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah. So the Chitta Matra, because the Chitta Matra point out various faults or kind of absurd consequences that would uh, ensue if things did exist that way, if things did exist as the basis of their name naturally by way of their own characteristics. So one, I mentioned this before, um, one is that um, if that were the case, then all we have to do is see an object. We don't have to be told what its name is, and we would just immediately know what it is because it's existing that way kind of from its own side. Um, so we wouldn't have to be told this is a ball. We would just know, everybody would know it's a ball or a computer or a chair. So that throwing that consequence, for example, at the Sotrantikas would make them think, you know, oh, okay, well, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> and another fault would be that 
um, if there were different words for the same language, for the same object, they couldn't refer to the same object, but they would have to be different objects for the different words. For example, table, okay? If table existed as a table uh, by way of its own characteristics, if, if it was the referent of that word table, then we couldn't call it mesa, right? Mesa would have to be something else. <laughs> or what do they call it in Tibetan? Chokse? Chokse? Okay. Chokse would be something else. <laughs> so every language yeah, uh, has a different word for, for that object. So you'd have to have a different object for each of those different words. So that would be another. And also with people. Um, if there was a person who had different different names, like Sangye Kadro, Kathleen McDonald, they have to be two different people. <laughs> I couldn't be both Sangye Kadro and Kathleen McDonald. I mean, we all have different names. <laughs> so we'd have to have a different person for every different name. Or alternatively, two people with the same name would be the same person. So there'd probably be zillions, or maybe not zillions, millions of John Smiths. <laughs> um, no, no, sorry. No, all, those, those people with the same name would have to be the same person. Okay, so John Smith, there's probably a million John Smiths in the world. So they'd all have to be one person. Everybody with the same name would have to be one person. So these are some, you know, consequences that they throw to uh, get people to think more carefully about this idea of things being um, naturally the bases of their names. Okay, so um, last time, last time we were looking at uh, different types of mind according to Chitamatra like valid and non-valid and then within valid there are direct perceivers as well as valid inferences and so we got up to the point of looking at the four different types of direct per perceivers does anyone remember any of those sense direct, sense direct perceiver mental mental yogic, yogic. self-knower self we put that last because most, other Buddhist, most of the Buddhist schools don't agree with that one. So we don't kind of pay a lot of attention to that. And, um, and one, there was, we saw one difference between the Satrantikas and the Chittamatrans with regard to direct perceivers. Because according to the Satrantikas, Direct perceivers have to be mistaken. That's part of the definition of a direct perceiver. It's a non-mistaken and non-conceptual mind. So according to Satrantika, only non-conceptual and non-mistaken minds are direct perceivers. And so if there's any mistake, then it can't be a direct perceiver. It gets knocked out. But according to Chittamatra, it's different um, because we saw that according to Chittamatra, sense direct perceivers of ordinary beings like ourselves are always mistaken. 
So all ordinary beings, that means those who haven't realized emptiness, all ordinary beings, when we see things and we hear things, so all of our sense, uh, five types of sense um, perceivers, they're all mistaken because things, the objects appear as if they're externally existing when in fact they're not. So there's always an element of error there. And yet they can still be direct perceivers. So that's one difference. And um, I was reading a transcript uh, from Nalanda Monastery, a transcript of a course on tenets. And they were having a lot of discussion about how to def how what is the definition of a direct perceiver according to Chidamantra. And it's very complicated because there's different scholars who have different definitions. I'm not going to go into it here. I'll, I'll, I'll spare you that. Um, but Kedupji had one definition, and Gyaltsabji had another definition, and the first Dalai Lama had another definition. And the Geshe who was teaching the course was discussing all of these. And yeah, it's very complicated. <laughs> so we don't, we don't have to go into that. Um, um, but anyway, um, I was also... Yeah, so regarding this one, I was reading the book Mind in Tibetan Buddhism um, that Elizabeth Knapper, Knapper put together with different teachings. And there it mentioned um, another difference between Sotrantika and Siddhamatra with regard to um, direct perceivers. So I just thought to share that with you in case you're interested. Um, so those of you who um, heard teachings before on Lorik, um, which is usually explained according to Sutrantika. It mentions there's three conditions for a sense direct perceiver or sense direct perception. So every time we see or hear or smell or taste or feel a uh, tactile experience, so any of those five types of uh, sense direct perceivers, um, that mind, that experience comes about from three conditions. And there are three conditions that have to come together for that experience to happen. And so the three conditions are an object condition, um, which according to Sutrantika refers to an external object. So I'm using here just an example of um, an eye consciousness seeing green. Because um, our eye consciousnesses, what they see are basically just shapes and colors. Um, and then, you know, our mind forms that into a table or a, a dog or whatever. Um, but basically we just see colors and shapes. So. I'll, I'll put green when we see green, like this tablecloth is green, or we look at green Tara, or a field of green grass. Okay, so seeing green. Um, so according to Satantika, the object condition is the green itself, a patch of green color, uh, and it's externally existing. It's out there. Um, it isn't just something coming from our mind. So that's one condition. The second condition is called the empowering condition. 
And that refers to the sense power, um, the sense powers. So uh, the sense power isn't the whole of the eye, like the whole organ, <laughs> the whole ball of the eye, but it's said to be a, a subtle kind of uh, matter existing within the eye. And um, now it's something subtle, <laughs> something not visible. Yeah, so the, the so that so having this eye sense power enables us to have the experience of seeing. If that was missing or damaged or whatever, we even if there's a green patch of color out there, we wouldn't be able to experience it. We wouldn't be able to see it. So that's another essential condition. And then the third condition is called the immediately preceding condition, and that's the previous moment of mind or consciousness. Um, and so, as we know, mind is this stream of momentary experiences, each one arising and passing, arising and passing, and so on. And so, when a moment of mind, after it arises and passes, it transforms into the next moment of mind. It becomes the next moment of mind. It doesn't just completely go out of existence altogether, but becomes the next moment of mind. So the previous moment of mind, just before we see the patch of green, um, transforms into that eye consciousness of seeing green. So those are the three conditions that have to be there with every single one of our sense experiences. There's an object, there's the sense power, and then there's the previous moment of mind that becomes the next moment of mind having that particular experience. So you probably most of you have heard that ex explanation before. But now Chitta Matra is different. <laughs> um, so for the object condition, the object condition isn't something out there, but rather it's the imprint or seed which is on the mind basis of all. So remember, we've heard that, that when we see an object, the object that we see, the object appearing to us is coming from an imprint on our mind. So it's that imprint on the mind that is said to be the object condition for, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's weird, but <laughs> this is what they say and they have their reasons for it. Um, yeah. So that's the object condition. Then the next, uh, the empowering condition, um, they say that, I don't fully understand this, but this is what it, said, it says in the book. It's a potency or power, nupa is the Tibetan term, that is existing with the previous moment of mind. And it's not matter, okay? So it's different. Like, you know, the Satrantikas say there's this kind of subtle matter, subtle form within the eye that is the empowering condition. That the Chitta Matra say, no, it's this potency in the mind, the previous moment of mind, which is not physical matter. There wasn't more explanation of it than that. But anyway, just to show there is a difference between what Sotrantika say and Chitta Matra say. 
But with the third condition, immediately preceding condition, that's the same for both schools. It's the previous moment of mind. So the previous moment of mind, uh, together with the other two conditions, the imprint that's ripening from the mind basis of all, and then the potency also in that previous moment of mind, those things coming together um, with the previous moment of mind, those bring about that next moment of mind, which is an eye consciousness seeing green. So this explanation of Chita Matra is because, you know, they don't accept that there are external objects. There isn't an external patch of green out there just waiting for us to come along and see it. Um, instead, the patch of green that we see arises at the same moment that we see it. And both that patch of green and our eye consciousness perceiving it arise from the same cause, the same cause, which is this imprint, the seed in the mind. So somewhat more complicated. So they say there is a patch of green. It's not just a consciousness thinking that there is a patch of green. Well, this is, um, this is what's not completely clear to me because in the teachings they do say, like, like last week, um, I read from Geshe Jama Tekchuk who said that, you know, the tanka that we see on the wall, it isn't, it wasn't just from my mind, but it, there was an artist who painted a tanka. And then it was brought here and put on the wall. And then we, you know, we all have our own uh, appearance of the tanka. And, and so what he says, the way he explains it is, if we don't investigate, if we don't investigate and, anal and analyze, it seems as if there's a common object, meaning an object that we all see in common. We all agree there's, there's a tanka there. It seems like that. But then when we analyze, investigate, what is that common object? Is there really a common object we can point to? Then we can't find one. Um, so uh, that's as far as I can understand. <laughs> yeah, I've always been baffled by, by the Chidamantra uh, school. And one of the questions that came up in my mind when I first heard their explanation was, like all of you, yeah, or all of you just, you know, coming from my mind and you're not really there, yeah. And there's actually a, that kind of view existing in Western philosophy. They call it solipsism, solipsism. So it started back with the Greeks, you know. And you kind of see how one could think that way. Like, how do I know you're, you're there? only my mind i have this experience in my mind that you appear but how can i be sure that you're really there even if i touch you that's still my mind if i hear your voice that's still my mind so you know people might think yeah that there's only my mind and everything else is just coming from my mind and nothing else is really out there so that is a 
a view that his people have come up with in Western philosophy. But apparently Chita Mantra is not saying that. They're not saying that you, all of you, are just created by my mind, appearances from my mind. You do exist. So each one of us does exist. But then the way that we see one another, you know, when we do see each other or we do see other objects, the objects that we, we see or the people, the beings that we see are coming from our own mind. It's it's a an, it's a kind of projection or yeah coming from the seed ripening in our mind and then that appears, but it does seem like yeah they're not saying that's all there is, there is something out there but what it is that's out there, that's never been clear to me. I mean, like in the sense that see, me seeing you. It isn't that you are all nothing but an appearance in my mind. There is a, a Tupananga <laughs> other than what how my mind sees you. But what is that Tupananga? That you know what I mean? Because what you we'd have see... to say. Well, what is a Buddha see? Because a Buddha, they say, a Buddha's mind has been totally purified of all these imprints. And a Buddha will see things just as they are. But then, okay, mm-hmm. Buddha doesn't have any more imprints. What does Buddha see? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think we'd have to go much deeper. So I, I know Jeffrey's going through Chita Mantra school, and some of you are attending his his class. Is he talking about this at all? Mm, not really. I don't know. Sorry, he's been very on different tangents lately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's like I say, I've always been baffled and many things about the school I don't understand myself, so I can't really explain. I can I'm not a cheetah matra myself. I don't fully understand their point of view. So what they would say to these kind of questions, I don't know. Sounds like intersubjectivity. Intersubjectivity? What's mm-hmm. that? It's a field of philosophy, phenomenology. Yeah, I know. Jay, Jay used that term, phenomenology, in his um, I mean, in that book where he translated one of Vasubandhu's texts. Mm-hmm. I did try to read up on phenomenology, but didn't understand it. <laughs> anyway, so let's move on. I can't answer for the cheetah matrons other than what's in the books. <laughs> so, um, okay, so then there were the four types of direct perceivers. Um, some are mistaken, some are not mistaken. And then in the text, it also says that direct perceivers can be valid or non-valid. And the text that was amusing from Jetson Choki Gelson doesn't give a definition uh, for valid um, cognizer, but I think it's probably the same. My guess is, my inference is that it's it's the same as before. 
which is new and incontrovertible. What else? I think that's it. New and incontrovertible mind. So I think the definition for valid mind would be the same as with, for Subtrantica because um, the text gives some examples of non-valid minds. So these are some examples. Um, first one, first bullet point is ordinary beings, mental direct perceivers that apprehend form are always non-valid. So uh, we're ordinary beings and mental direct perceivers are mental direct perceivers that apprehend form those are those really brief just like a flash of a mental direct perception that happens after we have a sense direct perception like seeing a patch of green then after that we have this very short moment of a mental direct perception that's also perceiving green and then right after that is conception, thinking about, oh, what a beautiful green field or what a beautiful green cloth or whatever thought, uh, conceptual thought, thinking about it. So these mental direct perceivers that we have that apprehend form um, are said to be inattentive perceptions because they're too brief for us to notice them. So they're that type of if you remember the seven types of awareness, one of which is called inattentive perception, or minds to which the object appears but is not ascertained. That's the more technical um, term. And those are non-valid minds. That's, that's one of the non-valid minds. So it's a direct perceiver, but it's not valid because it's not long enough for us to be able to notice um, the object and have a full awareness of it and so on. And then the second example is the second moment of an ordinary being's sense direct perceiver apprehending form. This is also non-valid. And the parentheses are added by me. It's not in the text, but um, I think it was Geshe Jama takes out commentary as well, um, because it's not new. Okay, so the second moment of an, like the eye consciousness seeing green, the second moment is not valid because it's not new. Only the first moment of seeing that object or hearing that sound or whatever is a valid one, because that's for most schools, they say that a valid cognition has to be new, has to be the first initial experience of an object in a completely infallible way, in a completely incontrovertible way. And so, and so my inference here is that the first moment, the first moment of this ordinary being sense direct perceiver, like seeing a patch of green, this would be a valid mind, um, even though it's mistaken, okay? It's mistaken because the object appears externally existing and the eye consciousness can't tell it's not externally existing. So there's a mistake there 
and yet it's still valid. Does that make sense? Because mistake, saying mistaken, um, usually mistaken, that term has to do with the appearing object, how the object appears. What is it that appears to the mind? So if the mind is mistaken to that, then it's mistaken. But even though, and Satrantika agree with this as well, a mind can be mistaken but still valid. Do you remember example of that? According to Satrantika, conceptions. All conceptual minds, all thoughts are mistaken because the appearing object is just a mental image. When we think about mother, then a mental image of mother appears to our mind. And it seems like real, the real object, our mother, but it's not, it's just an image. And the, and the conceptual mind is not able to distinguish that image from the real object. So conceptual minds are always mistaken, even according to Satrantika. And yet they can still be valid. They can still be valid minds. So I was, yeah, I was kind of wondering with Chitamatra, they, they say that our sense, our sense direct perceivers are all mistaken, but can they still be valid? And it seems that they can be because of this example that they give. And I checked with Geshe-la just to be sure. <laughs> and he said, yes, he looked at the text and he agreed with my understanding of it. So when it says, like the second bullet point, the second moment of an ordinary being sense direct perceiver apprehending form is not valid. That's implying the first moment is valid. And so if the first moment is valid, then that means it's a mistaken mind because the object appears externally existing, but it's still valid because as long as to be valid, the mind has to understand the object and be able to lead to a, a certainty about it. Like if, so if we see a patch of green and we see it as green and not red, and we see it as a field and not a buffalo or something. Uh, so we're seeing it correctly and afterwards we're sure of what we saw, then even if there's this mistaken element, oh, it appeared externally existing, even though it's not, that doesn't cancel out being a valid mind. It can still be a valid mind. Does that make sense? That's, yeah. Okay, so some direct perceivers then are valid. For example, the first moment of seeing green correctly but others, other direct perceivers are not valid, like the second moment and the third moment and so on, because they're no longer new. Or if we see green as red, it's, a, it's actually green, but we see it as red, which apparently does happen to people who are colorblind. They can't, somebody told me, <laughs> they can't distinguish green and red. So, um, so the object is green, but it person thinks it's red, then that would be a, a wrong perception. 
wrong perception. So it would be a perception, but not a valid one. It would be a wrong perception. Does that make sense? Yeah, all these different types of minds and different variations between one school and another. So complicated. It takes years to figure them out. And then um, the last point is there are four types of yogic direct perceivers. That's not so different than what we learned before. Um, so there's a yogic direct perceiver that directly realizes subtle impermanence. One that directly realizes coarse selflessness of persons. What's coarse selflessness of persons? Does anyone remember? Is it, um, uh, is it substantially, uh, self-sufficient, substantially existent? No, according to Prasangika, yeah, yeah that's the course. Okay. Mm -hmm. right. That's course. But according to the other schools, coarse selflessness of persons is the absence of a permanent oh, unitary, unitary that's the really coarse yeah. one permanent unitary and independent self that's the one that the non-buddhists believe in but all the buddhists reject so that's coarse selflessness of persons and then subtle selflessness of persons that's what you just mentioned the self-sufficient substantially existent person and then the fourth, the last one is selflessness of phenomena, which according to this school, Chittamatra, is the emptiness of subject and object being of different natures or different entities. Um, or a simple way of saying it is non-duality. Emptiness of duality. And according to most schools, except, no, in fact, all schools, all schools except Prasangika, to have a yogic direct perceiver, you have to be an Arya. Um, you have to be someone who's had direct realization of emptiness. So these yogic direct perceivers only exist in the minds of Aryas. Um, but apparently Prasangika says that you can have some yogic direct perceivers before you become an Arya. For example, the direct um, realization of subtle impermanence. I was just looking this up because it comes up in 70, it came up in 70 topics class. So I had to look something up about that. Yeah, so Prasangikas say that before you're an Arya, before you attain the path of seeing, you can have some direct realizations like subtle impermanence and also selflessness of persons. So a yogic direct perceiver comes about by first, you have to first learn about this particular topic like impermanence or selflessness, uh, study, think about it, meditate on it and get a conceptual understanding of it. And then using reasoning, you get a inferential, a valid inferential um, realization of it, but that's still conceptual. And then you keep meditating. You also have to develop calm abiding um, because a yogic direct perceiver comes about as a result of a union of calm abiding and special insight. And so you have to have calm abiding, very, very strong concentration, 
and then do analytical meditation on this topic, impermanence or selflessness, and eventually you get this union of uh, calm abiding and special insight. But union of calm abiding and special insight can still be conceptual. Like when you, like uh, path of preparation, when you attain the path of preparation, you have a union of calm abiding and special insight into emptiness, but it's still conceptual. It's not yet direct, but you continue meditating and eventually this mental image, conceptual image disappears. It's, it's said to get thinner and thinner and then, then it finally disappears. And then your mind has a direct uh, perception of the object like emptiness so that's the meaning of a yogic direct perceiver so it's quite a high achievement high level of realization but something we'll have to get one of these days okay then next i'm going to see if we can finish chitta mantra today um selflessness so this is the sixth um, point in the outline. How, what does Chitta Matra say about selflessness? Um, so there's two types of selflessness of persons. This is like before, like all the other schools. There's the course, which is emptiness of a permanent, unitary, independent person. And then the subtle emptiness of a self-supporting, substantially existent person. So those are, as the other schools asserted, Satrantika, Vibhashika. But then this is, um, this school is different from the other two schools we've studied in that they also have selflessness of phenomena. So they say all other phenomena, not just persons, but everything else has a certain kind of selflessness as well and um, so they give an illustration here of that it's the emptiness of a form and the valid cognizer app apprehending it being of other substances so for example the patch of green well, we used before that example and we have an eye consciousness or we could say an, it's like a direct perceiver I direct perception, seeing a patch of green. So the object, in this case, the patch of green, that's the object, the form. And then the valid cognizer would be the I perception, I consciousness, seeing the form. So it seems like they're two different things. It seems like they are um, you know, different natures or different substances, but that is wrong. That is a false perception because both of them, both the object and the subject, consciousness, arise from the same cause, the seed or imprint in the mind. It has ripened and produced the object that's perceived and the eye consciousness perceiving it. So the so this object and subject being empty of different natures or different substances, um, that's the meaning of this emptiness, selflessness of phenomena. It's kind of complicated. Does it make sense? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Now I can talk about it, but it took me years and years to be able to 
just get my head around the, the terminology. Or, you know, like I say, another simpler term for this is non-duality, as long as you understand that, what that means, that there's a seemingly duality between subject and object, as if there's a subject over here perceiving an object over there, and they're totally like unrelated. The object is externally existing. So that's duality, there's that seeming duality. But in reality, that duality isn't true. It's a mistake. It's like a false appearance. And instead, the object that's appearing is of the same nature as the mind perceiving it. They're both coming from the same um, cause. And so, yeah, like they said, they use the analogy of dreams because when we're sleeping, and dreaming, having dreams, then all the things that appear in our dreams are just coming from our mind. They're just, they're, they're not really out there, even though they seem like they're out there and we get all caught up in them and react emotionally to them as if they're real, but they're all just appearances to our mind, coming from our mind. So we all have dreams, I hope. <laughs> Last night they talked about I don't know if you watched the Dalai Lama, he was saying, because he started this initiation and he, he handed out the kusha grass and he said, okay, put this under your mattress and under your pillow and watch your dreams. <laughs> he says, but I don't have dreams. <laughs> <laughs> he has such sound sleep, he doesn't dream. I don't know if that's true or not. But anyway, yeah, I guess there are some people who don't have dreams, but most of us do have dreams. And so we have that experience of dreaming. And so if we kind of think of our experience of dreaming and then that's that's a helpful way of understanding what the Chidamatras are saying. Not exactly. They're not saying everything is a dream. All of you are just a dream in my mind. Not quite like that, but like a dream, similar to a dream in that, you know, all the things we perceive are coming from imprints on our mind seeds in our mind. So yeah, it's said to be a very helpful way to reduce afflictive emotions. We, if we meditate on this, um, you know, things are not so real as they appear to be, then it doesn't make sense to get so attached to, to things that appear pleasant or so angry and upset, things that appear unpleasant. And so that's why the Buddha taught this view, is to help people with strong afflictions to reduce them, to pacify them. Okay, then. Next one is presentation of grounds and paths. So here, some differences to what we've learned before. Um, so it st starts with objects of abandonment. These are the things that one has to uh, overcome or eliminate to attain uh, goals of either liberation or Buddhahood, enlightenment. So afflictive obscurations, those are the ones that prevent us from getting out of samsara and attaining nirvana. So those According to this goal, they are the conception grasping a self of persons 
it probably means the the subtle one not just the gross one but it's probably the subtle uh grasping of the self the self-sufficient substantially existent person so grasping at that plus the seeds there are seeds in our mind to have that kind of conception coming up again and again and again life after life after life plus three poisons those are greed hatred and ignorance and i think all the other afflictions as well jealousy and pride and so on so all the different afflictive emotions that arise due to that kind of conception due to grasping at a self-sufficient substantially existent person and the seeds of those so there's also seeds to have those afflictions come up seeds of anger seeds of attachment seeds of jealousy and so on so all of those things in the mind are the things that keep us in samsara and stop us from getting out of samsara so those are the things we have to overcome we have to eliminate in order to attain nirvana and how do we do that how do we eliminate all those? Realize emptiness. Huh? Realize emptiness. Uh, not necessarily. Mm. <laughs> yeah, to get rid of that. I mean, the conception grasping a self of persons. How do we get rid of that? Selflessness of Persons. meditate on selflessness of persons right so um so it's the it's meditation on the selflessness of persons the absence of a self-sufficient substantially existent person that is the way to overcome that conception and all those other things that come from it so that's why according to this school in order to get out of samsara you don't have to realize emptiness you don't have to meditate on emptiness their emptiness their version of emptiness so hearers and solitary realizers who aim for nirvana the self-liberation they 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 only meditate on that uh, selflessness Selflessness of persons. There's no self-sufficient, substantially existent person. So they get rid of that. Then the second type of obscurations are obscurations to omniscience. These are the ones that prevent Buddhahood, becoming a Buddha, fully enlightened. So this is what the bodhisattvas need to get rid of. Um, so now the text was kind of strange. <laughs> the term used here was denzin, Tibetan term, which is usually translated as, as grasping at true existence. But that doesn't make sense because according to this school, they assert true existence, at least some things. Is, do you remember what things are truly existing according to this school? Mind. Yeah, mind is truly existing. That's how nature is. All. Um, they're thoroughly, thoroughly established. Yeah, so if you remember the three natures, 
One is called Other Powered Natures, All Impermanent Phenomena. Those are truly existing. And the second nature is Thoroughly Established Nature, which refers to emptiness, emptiness and selflessness. Those are like ultimate truths. Those are also truly existing. So it's only the third nature, imputational natures, that are not truly existing. Those aren't truly existing, but the other two are. So it wouldn't make sense to say that the conception grasping at true existence is an obscuration to omniscience. And so a way around it um, is what I did here to translate the term Denzin as grasping as true, grasping as true, and, um, and relate it to the main type of ignorance, which is asserted by Chidamata, grasping the appearance of external objects as true. Yeah, so, you know, this conception that external existence is true. Things are external as they appear to be, you know, buying into that appearance, grasping at that appearance. And so Geshe Jambatekchok in his commentary does say that, that this term here, Denzin, grasping is true, does refer to self-grasping of phenomena, the conception of um, phenomena, grasping at subject and object as being of different natures. That's the main obscuration to omniscience, the main thing that bodhisattvas have to abandon, to get rid of, to attain Buddhahood. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Um, and it seeds, so that conception, um, grasping at phenomena, together with the seeds that keep giving rise to that again and again and again, and latencies, I guess that's the imprints of that. Um, and then all mistaken dualistic appearances that arise through its power. So all the appearances of things existing externally, dualistic appearances. So those are all things that prevent becoming enlightened, becoming a Buddha. Those are the things that need to be eliminated by bodhisattvas. And the way they do that is by meditating on emptiness of duality, um, uh, the selflessness of phenomena. Okay, so there's just one more, oh, two more slides. Next, oh yeah, so the actual presentation of grounds and paths. So this is pretty much what we learned before. It's just going through the three vehicles. Hearers, they attain their enlightenment by meditating on selflessness of persons, collecting a small, relatively small amount of merit over three lives, and they, are, they practice for their own purpose. Their goal is achieving self-liberation, liberating themselves from samsara. Um, and then solitary realizers attain their enlightenment by meditating on selflessness of persons, and they collect a middling amount of merit 
for 100 eons or more. I think that's a minimum. And again, for their own purpose. And then bodhisattvas attain their enlightenment by meditating on the emptiness of subjects and objects being of different substances, or we could say emptiness of duality. Um, and they collect a great amount of merit for three countless eons or more, and it's for the purpose of others. So the first two, the hearers in solitary, realize just meditate on selflessness of persons, absence of self-sufficient, substantially existent persons. So that's how they get rid of their obscurations and attain their enlightenment. But bodhisattvas need to meditate on um, selflessness of phenomena, how all phenomena are empty of duality. They also meditate, I'm sure they also meditate on selflessness of persons, but this is their main meditation object to overcome the obscurations to omniscience. Okay, there's one more slide. Again, I think some of the ideas are not not, not new. Um, but it's going back to these true aspectarians and false aspectarians. And they have different views about what happens to hearer and solitary realizer arhats. <laughs> Okay, so in arhats, the true aspectarians, they say that arhats, um, they, attain, they attain nirvana, and then they're still in their bodies for a while, and then they attain what's called nirvana without remainder. And when they do that, in other words, they die, um, their mental continuums cease. So that's like the Satrantikas and the Vibhashikas. They just go out of existence. Um, but that doesn't happen with Buddhas. That's that's uh, an exception. So they say that um, uh, it doesn't happen with Buddhas because a bodhisattva, when a bodhisattva becomes fully enlightened, they are in Akanishta, pure land, and they they are in the aspect of a complete enjoyment body, a sambhogakaya, and so. The, the Sambhogakaya uh, remains until samsara ends because a bodhisattva makes this promise or resolution. They say, you know, I will, I will continue helping sentient beings until there's no more sentient beings, until, you know, samsara ends. And so because they make that very strong promise and they're, you know, creating all this merit and dedicating it for that, then, then because of that power, the complete enjoyment body will remain, will continue to exist until samsara ends, as long as there's still sentient beings. So Buddha's mind, Buddha's mind doesn't go out of existence, it remains. Um, then the second point says, but, so they assert three final vehicles because sentient beings from beginningless time have three different lineages, aspirations, ways of practicing and results. So um, yeah, so they say each sentient being has their own kind of lineage, their own kind of disposition, 
to be either a hearer or a solitary realizer or bodhisattva and then become a Buddha. And this is something kind of fixed and definite. So they, you know, they don't switch from one to another. And anyway, hearer and solitary realizer arhats go out of existence. So they, they can't enter the Mahayana path and become Buddhas. But the false aspectarians, they assert one final vehicle. So they say that when here in solitary realizer arhats attain nirvana without remainder, they don't go out of existence. Just the continuum of awareness, it says mere awareness included in true sufferings and true origins, that ceases. So whatever aspects of their mind are included in the first two truths, sufferings and origins of suffering, that ceases. But there is this mere awareness that continues and they will all eventually attain enlightenment. Now, so Geshe Jama Tekshav says, um, the Arhats will be awakened by the Buddhas and told that they have more work to do. And so then they will enter the Mahayana path and follow the bodhisattva path and eventually become Buddhas. Yeah. So, so within Chidamatra then, there are different views about um, whether there's three final vehicles or one final vehicle, what happens to arhats, what happens to Buddhas, and so on and so forth. So we've Little, gone a little bit over time. Any questions? Uh, how can we know which is correct? <laughs> which which <laughs> one of these views? I was. It was. It was in the seventy topics class that I gave a presentation about the three final vehicles or one final. It wasn't in this class, right? No, it was. It was in topics. Yeah, so in the class um, I'm doing on Wednesday, I, I did give a, a presentation about these two different points of view. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so some Buddhist schools say there's three final vehicles, other Buddhist schools say there's one final vehicle. And each of these schools has scriptures that they point to, mm -hmm. sutras that they point to, where the Buddha did mm -hmm. say this. And they also have reasons. There's reasoning that they use. I mean, I can send you... what. I guess I could send you the information about that. We don't have time to go through it all again now, but but yeah, it's quite it's quite interesting. They don't just say, oh, because I like it, you know, I like this idea, or I think it's right. But they do have, you know, scriptures and reasons to back up what they believe. So I guess you can just look at their the, the positions, you know, explore them and think about them and see which one makes more sense. <laughs> um, difficult to know for sure, but um, yeah, I mean, one of the points made by the ones who assert one final vehicle, and actually I think it comes in one of the sutras, that if there, was, if there wasn't one fi final vehicle, if there were only three final vehicles, and certain people just end up as arhats and never go to Buddhahood, then then there would be faults to that in the sense of, well, that means that the Buddha is miserly. 
he didn't teach, he didn't give the Mahayana teachings to everybody. He didn't teach everybody the methods for attaining full enlightenment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how can we say the Buddha is Maishu? <laughs> he was withholding information from sentient beings. That was one of the faults that I remember. And and that and the Buddha's compassion was kind of limited and that they didn't have this strong aspiration to lead everybody to to enlightenment, to Buddhahood. So those are those are some of the things that really hit me, really were strong points for me. But yeah, I can put together some information in email too that you can read. Okay, so next time we can start on Madhyamika. Woo! Middle way school. So let's dedicate.